1: Hello, and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Darshan Maharaja, who is an Indian man who moved or immigrated to Canada and has been for several years now reporting on issues that impact the immigrant community in Canada. I originally contacted him to speak about the Canada Medical Assistance in Dying program or MAIDS program, and it turns out that Darshan has a lot more information to share with me, so it was great to have him on and learn more about what he calls the Immigration Ponzi Scheme, that's kind of keeping the Canadian economy afloat to certain degrees, and also how MAIDS or the Medical Assistance in Dying or Dying by Doctor or Easy Access Euthanasia is in- impacting specifically immigrants excellent man links to his work are down there in the description without further ado here is darshan maharaja cool all right so what got you started on i guess reporting on issues within canada and then specifically the maids thing
0: yeah It's a little bit of a checkered background because (laughs) after I came to Canada, I was busy setting down, building a career and all. Then around uh, eight years ago, I started, you know, I had then enough mental space left to um, pay attention to politics and what was going on. And I realized that... uh, there isn't much commentary being provided by immigrants, and mostly they are from Asia or Africa, Latin America. There isn't much commentary on the on the overall issues. the The ethnic media tends to be very confined in uh, talking about issues from their countries of origin. So I thought maybe I can fill that space, yeah. so I started writing and then about three years ago I started my own uh, website where I could put up my articles Yeah, and the advantage that I saw there was that there wasn't anyone in between to filter what I was saying or what my uh, audience was uh, absorbing from me. And I take a range of issues, uh, depending on whatever happens to be the current concern. So I've written about the state of uh, Canadian healthcare system, and I'll give you some background on that. But uh, basically, it's uh, any issue like, you know, renewable energy, the efforts to uh, curb climate change, what is the right approach, things like that. And I don't claim to be an expert on any of these issues, but I just look around, see other literature that already exists, and then put it all together in one narrative, where all the different ideas, sometimes opposing ideas, can be put together so that the reader can get an overall sense of where they want to be on that issue. Yeah. So
1: beginning with the immigration or the immigrant issue... Mm -hmm. What's the lay of the land for that from your point of view, Canada's immigration policy and the issues around that immigrants face and that Canada faces with regard to uh, by accepting immigrants, assimilating or not assimilating them, taking care or not taking care of that population?
0: The First of all, assimilation is a bad word in Canada because of the history with the indigenous people. Yeah. so i prefer to use integration integration and okay. there are there are major uh, barriers to that primarily because uh, uh, immigrants from one particular origin will tend to settle uh, you know in one locality and mostly we have like five or six major urban centers toronto montreal uh, vancouver and surrounding suburbs calgary And Edmonton. So, uh, this creates ethnic silos. And you will see immigrants here who have been here for like 10, 20 years, and uh, they aren't uh, still integrated because there is no external uh, pressure to step out of their comfort zone. So, that is a barrier to integration. And then this is encouraged uh, by the official policy of multiculturalism. So there is even less reason to step out of one's uh, uh, comfort zone or boundary of comfort. How does multiculturalism
1: as a doctrine or a policy or set of policies influence that uh, or keep people in their silos or disincentivize them from melting potting?
0: It's, a, it's a, in my view, the most uh, important factor uh, creating these ethnic silos and in uh, uh, keeping uh, immigrants from melting into the. I think back a uh, few decades ago, we settled for a mosaic paradigm rather than a melting pot one. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. But uh, immigrants who came here before that, uh, it's impossible to tell them apart from any other. Canadian. We call them multi generational Canadians here, because okay. calling them white is impolite. But uh, multi generational Canadians. But I know people who came here in the 1950s and 60s from even the Middle East or uh, uh, from uh, South Asia. And uh, I mean, apart from maybe looking at them physically, you can't tell that they are any different from multi-generational Canadians in terms of their approach, regardless of what side of the political spectrum they fall. They may be on the left, right, somewhere in the middle, but there are so many other qualities that uh, are not present or not visible uh, in the recent Immigrant population, and that is I think because uh, since uh, this multiculturalism became the official doctrine uh, there has been whether wittingly or otherwise incentivization of uh, not integrating into the mainstream
1: okay, so your checkered past, you've lived in a lot of places, and yes, I have. you're originally from India yes. And India is, well, it's it's a big country, but it's also very old. And there's a lot of different ethnicities and cultures in India. It's not as officially homogenous as China is. India took a certain tact on separate but equal or, or a certain way of uh, mitigating these different cultures. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of tension. So coming from the point of view of the uh, history of India... And the way that India as a culture deals with all these multi-cultures within it, how is that different than the Western model, specifically the Canadian model, of thinking about how all these different cultures should interact or engage or assimilate or integrate, rather?
0: See, my Indian definition of multiculturalism is that it is a situation where one individual can occupy more than one cultural space. So, with all the, you know, dizzying uh, uh, diversity in India, you will find people of one group uh, being very active in the uh, cultural traditions, etc. of another group. And it it's never a cause for concern. There are limitations, of course, but otherwise it's not a cause for concern. Whereas Canadian uh, paradigm of multiculturalism uh, incentivizes you not to step outside your cultural boundary.
1: And how? By by terms such as cultural appropriation or the rubric of uh, oppression and privilege and the different sorts of status that one gains for not being white or not being a part of the dominant culture, those kind of are some of the influences?
0: Yeah, definitely. And in my view, cultural appropriation is a, is a very wrong concept. Because what we call Indian culture has gone through so many changes that, and those were all influences from other cultures. To give you just one simple example, if you see any authentic biryani which has broccoli in it. (laughs) I mean, until I was a child, nobody knew what broccoli was. (laughs) Potato came from uh, southern uh, uh, South America, from the Andes. And a religious fast uh, In Hinduism, you are allowed to eat in fasting. So, yeah, you are not going totally hungry. Only thing is you are not eating what you normally eat. So, uh, root vegetables like potato, sweet potato, those are eaten and dairy products are eaten. Fruits can be eaten. Now, potato, how did it become part of Hinduism, which is 5,000 years old? And this potato came to India a couple of centuries ago. (laughs) It's uh, something for anthropologists to untangle, but for me, what it means is that there is a uh, inbuilt tendency to co-opt uh, influences from other cultures and make them part of uh, the local culture. Yeah. From that point of view, the whole idea of cultural appropriation doesn't make sense to me. It tells you that your Culture has to be kept Frozen in time Mm. That it cannot be allowed To change And anything that is static Will die Mm. You you cannot uh, Stop things from changing It's the order of the universe So uh, In that sense Cultural appropriation As a concept Is harmful to society Is there
1: something about and this is kind of a theoretical or kind of a philosophical uh, way of, of thinking about the differences between India and Canada. Is there something about Hinduism or assuming that the Hinduism is like the, the seed around which India grew and expands and contracts, if that's the center or the, the set of ideas that kind of gives the nation it's kind of congealed identity and then in canada it would have been christianity until christianity kind of converted into a godless form of christianity it's still christianity mm-hmm. and morality and and puritanical tone but they just changed mm-hmm. the language where there's no god um yes. i just i wonder if there's uh there's something uh radically adaptive in the Hindu tradition as opposed to the Christian tradition from your point of view or this particular um, modern, postmodern form of Christian? um...
0: You are exactly right. Because if you go back to the root of Hinduism, it is a monotheistic tradition. Whereas today you ask anyone, including Hindus, about Hinduism, they'll say that there is a whole pantheon of gods. So. You know, it has gone through uh, processes of adaptation depending on the times. Mm -hmm. And therefore, even the other religions, um, Buddhism, Jainism and Sikhism are in the fold of what we call dharmic dharma, being the mistranslated word for religion. Dharma is something way deeper and wider. But let's not uh, digress. So this is the Dharmic tradition where Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism and Sikhism are part of it. Then even Islam, which came from outside, it changed itself to the lay of the land. So that there are so many uh, religious practices of Muslims in the subcontinent Mm -hmm. that are very different from what you find in the heartland of Islam. One very simple example being celebrating the birthday of Prophet Muhammad as Eid. So, there are two Eids, one after the month of Ramadan, Uh the other uh, roughly two and a half months after that, where the uh, animal sacrifice happens. I think it was Abraham who wanted to sacrifice. He was willing to sacrifice his son and then he was turned into sheep. So, that is another Eid. But then there is this third eve, which you don't find being celebrated elsewhere, and the puritanical among the Muslims will look down on it as you know something that is not part of Islam. But for hundreds of millions of Muslims in the subcontinent, it is something to celebrate. Hmm. So even Islam changed uh, its uh, contours depending on the lay of the land. So too with Christianity, but I think Christianity did that elsewhere also. When I was living in Africa, I found that uh, the people were mostly Christians. But if someone bought a piece of land to build a house on it, they would have to first sacrifice a rooster. And then sprinkle the blood of that rooster on that land to appease his uh, uh, ancestors. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that if you go by strict uh, rules of Christianity, would be looked down upon as something pagan. So, it's a syncretic form of Christianity in Africa as well as in India. I had a uh, childhood friend who was Christian. And uh, on Christmas, they would celebrate by making the same sweets that the Hindus make on Diwali. So, Mm. it's a very local uh, flavor of each religion that is not indigenous to the subcontinent. So, because of that uh, centuries and millennia of history, uh, the idea that uh, religion and culture have to remain frozen in one form is quite alien. It's only here in Canada that I see it. And the practical effect of that is that it keeps people separate.
1: Well, and worried, and and uh, puritanical, fundamentalist, always trying to trying to find the perfect past or the perfect balance or the perfect future, rather than That's right. engaging in the process of life. is there is there a Hindu a word or concept for this for evolution for change?
0: Yeah. Creation, if you go back to Sanskrit, because that's the original language of Hinduism, if you go back to the definition of creation, it's utpatti. And whatever brings about a change, uh, typically in an evolutionary sense, not in a degenerative sense, that is called vyutpatti. that is a specific type of creation, which is not creation de novo but rather creation based on something that already existed, because as times change, you need to uh, change whatever you are having on your hand. So that Vyutpati is is part of the, you know, it's deeply embedded in the psyche of uh, people in the subcontinent. It may be changing now because of political forces and other things. But this is basically where it starts from. So when I come to Canada and I see that there is this uh, policy of multiculturalism which wants me to maintain my traditions in the form that I brought here, rather than adapt them to Canada. It's a problem for me.
1: Families have a lot going on. Rupa uh, Subramanya, and uh, she spoke about when the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, went to India, he tried to adopt the culture, but in a way that was super cringe, but it just didn't, it wasn't up to date or it was uh, out of place. Like the way that this Western man tried to honor the culture in India, it didn't match Uh, It didn't work. Um, It didn't work from our point of view because it looked like he was pandering, but from the Indian point of view, it it looked like he was not really understanding uh, the use of culture, the use of these uh, older forms or traditional forms of dress. Um, There's just something there. I, I don't really, I can't really articulate why he was wrong in doing that or he committed a faux pas, but there's something about how, what you're saying about just be yourself and interact and you know share, but don't try to adopt or make a caricature or costume out of the culture in a way. There's, there's a missing authenticity in how Trudeau was trying to uh, appropriate or, or project his or, or integrate himself into that culture.:
0: He was insincere and cartoonish, yeah, among other things. It's like if I were to go to Texas and I sport a holster on my hip with two six-shooters on either side. No. (laughs) Everybody in India was in Western clothing. I mean, they were wearing Western-style suits and tie and things like that. And here he is, wearing stuff that is worn maybe a few times in one's lifetime, maybe when one is getting married or something. Yeah. Right. Imagine a lady showing up in a bridal dress at a normal function. Meeting, yeah. Right? <laughs> That's a good one. So it was insincere, uh, cartoonish, and of course, he was trying to pander.
1: Yeah.
0: I think the background to that in my uh, guesstimate is that uh, back at the time, we have three political parties here, three main ones. Uh, conservatives, uh, Liberals, and then there is New Democratic Party. So, the New Democratic Party had just elected a Sikh uh, gentleman, Jagmeet Singh, as their leader. So, uh, the fear might have been that he would uh, draw away the Sikh vote from the Liberals, who are, you know, generally Liberals get the immigrant vote and therefore that might have been the fear. So, the only uh, real rationale for that visit was to make a show there to be useful here. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I am part of your community, kind of. He was there at the Golden Temple, which every visiting prime minister from Canada goes to, as I suspect every other head of government. But he was there, he was at Gandhi's uh, ashram, he was at all the uh, you know historic landmarks just to create the photos. Yeah, and someone very really, very rightly remarked that he he was never at a place at a monument that didn't exist 200 years ago. Oh, all of them existed. They are all centuries old. So he didn't go to let's say the you know hub of the uh, IT technology in Bangalore. Because the objective was not a state music. The objective was to create photographs and images for use politically here.
1: Yeah. yeah the, the string of um, faux pas by that man is pretty um, phenomenal.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: There's, there's a, a concept in, in liberalism, uh, and it's by Karl Popper. Uh, about the paradox of tolerance where liberalism, the Western form of liberalism is this ideal state of, of tolerance of difference. But the one thing that you can't tolerant tolerate is intolerance. The, the intolerant party in this mixture, the most intolerant of all of these different cultures will eventually, you know, spread or destroy everybody else. So you have to be intolerant towards the intolerance. And there's problems with that formulation um, that we don't have to get into here. But when you do have a multicultural society or a mixture or a cultural soup, like in India or in a multicultural uh, America and Canada that's inviting all these people in and and having people stream in, there will be tensions between the more radical fundamentalist groups and the more tolerant groups. And I'm wondering, because I know this is a huge topic because India is thousands and thousands of years old, and I'm sure that there's all these wars and all this strife and all this friction. But over time, I'm wondering if there was a balance that... We're largely broadly speaking india arrived at, at being able to be tolerant but not uh, allow the more radical factions to to take over like is there a tension or a balance or kind of uh, a wisdom that's kind of grown up in india uh, going through all these changes and just being able to appropriate and and bring in and house all these different ways of thinking all these different religions philosophies
0: It's easy to resolve even here in North America. I mean, India's history of few thousand years can be useful. But even without that, uh, it's easy to resolve that here by agreeing on a certain uh, set of core principles that we will not deviate from. So, for example, uh, talking about uh, assisted dying. Yeah. Right, I don't come at it from a religious point of view and therefore I am not completely against it. I see where it can be the more humane thing to do for someone who is near the end of their life, no chance of recovery, suffering intolerable pain and then they themselves say that, you know, I need to be put out of this agony. Then also... You don't do it immediately. You give them time to think it over, etc. Then their families are affected. They have to be comfortable with it. Even in Canada, last year, 231 individuals whose request had been approved withdrew it after approval. And 7.5% of them said that uh, their reason or one of the reasons for withdrawing it was that family doesn't agree. So you have to balance between honoring the person's wish given the circumstances and uh, balancing it out with other factors which are outside that person. And then if it is done, then I have nothing against it. It may be the more human thing too. But if you want to expand that, people who are not near the end of their life, who are not suffering from uh, a terminal illness, who who are not reasonably foreseen to die in the near future, and whose reason for uh, seeking assisted dying is, let's say, financial difficulty because of a physical disability or whatever then you have to be very careful proceeding with that policy. Now, these are all court decisions and we are supposed to be respectful to the court and all. But in my humble opinion, the courts are over-interpreting individual rights at the expense of every other factor that is supposed to weigh Hmm. in the matter. And just this morning, it struck me that in societies where they have unfortunately still, uh, let's say, stoning by death, Hmm. or going back in history inquisition, burning people at the stake, in those societies, assisted dying would be seen as morally offensive. Hmm. So there is something deep within the human psyche where Ritual sacrifice in pursuit of an ideology, or in order to adhere to or comply with an ideological imperative, is a constant. Maybe I mean this is something for anthropologists and other yeah. scientists to uh, to unpack. Yeah. But this just, just struck me in the morning. I said, "Hey, you know what?" There are times when ritual sacrifice is offered and uh, in some cases it might have been the fittest individual of that society. That has also happened. A young guy, maybe around 18-20 years of age, fully healthy, good warrior, has to be sacrificed to a certain deity to keep that deity happy so that misfortune does not befall us. That is one. The other ideology is that someone has done done something so harmful to society that the only way is to kill them. Now, capital punishment is at a different level, which is also in the same uh, spectrum. But, for example, accusation of adultery. And then the woman has to be stoned to death. Biblical times, but sadly still existing parts of the world. So, we have got rid of that. In Canada, there is no capital punishment. Therefore, maybe it was just a matter of time Hmm. before assisted dying came to existence. Now, the curious part is this. Uh, Just like you have your Bill of Rights in the United States, we have our Charter of Rights in uh, Canada where Section 7 says that uh, everyone has a right to life and security of person. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the criminal law contained a provision saying that attempting suicide or assisting someone in that attempt, whether successful or not, was a criminal offence. So back in 2015, the Supreme Court said that this is a violation of constitutional right to life and security of a person. Over on the other side in uh, British Columbia, someone went to court on a different issue. And just to give a brief background for your uh, American audience, our healthcare system is completely controlled by government and there is a Section in the United States that aspires to have that, my sincere advice to them would be to be careful of what they wish for, because Mm -hmm. they may get it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you just a few uh, datums. Yeah, please. One in seven Canadian does not have a family doctor. Um, The average wait time for specialist treatment is north of 26 weeks there are people who, want, who need uh, spinal cord surgery and have been on a wait list for four years. So, uh, there is this uh, group in uh, British Columbia which says that private healthcare should be allowed, which presently is not allowed legally, except in the province of Quebec, but then that's a whole different discussion. So, uh, if someone is on a wait list for too long, and wants to access healthcare privately by paying out of pocket, then they should be allowed. Because it is a uh, preventing them from accessing private healthcare is a violation of their charter right to life and security of person. The British Columbia Court of Appeals agreed that there is a violation of charter rights, but that violation is permitted in pursuit of fundamental justice. Fundamental justice. Yes.
1: Okay. That you
0: should continue to suffer and possibly die because we care for fundamental justice. Because if uh, what is fundamental access, justice? access to private health care is allowed, then the trope is that rich people will jump the queue. I mean, in all these decades, nobody has thought that we can increase the capacity so that nobody is jumping the queue. Look at Europe. I mean, every time you try to talk about healthcare in Canada, they'll bring up the horrors of the US healthcare system, which actually isn't that bad, I know. I mean, I have family living in the United States. So I know it's not bad at all. But here they have created a monster of US style healthcare system. So, the uh, considered judicial wisdom in Canada is that the government is allowed to violate your right to access health care but is obligated to uphold your right to access death. Oh, God. Okay. If an individual is very, very sick, in need of treatment and suffering yeah. badly, and says that, you know what, I'm willing to pay for this treatment from my own funds, just let me access it, they'll say no. But if the same individual says, you know, I can't bear this pain, please help me die, they'll say here is your bed. So this is where we have reached because of socialized medicine.
1: (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Just the, the concept of fundamental justice is code word for the collective, the collective will, or the social, the socialist state is more important than the individual because the socialist state has the individual's best interests at heart collectively. There, it it seems from an outsider point of view, I'm sure there's a lot of legalese and rationality that buttresses that and allows Mm -hmm. that to operate, but it, it seems very perverse. And then when you add in, the opt out of death, well, we can't, we can't fix you, but we can solve the, the problem of your health completely by the final solution. That is, it's just so odd, but I guess it works out within the rationale of the system. It seems like the system itself has selected for people to agree with the expansion and the hegemony, the hegemon, he- hegemony, whatever of the system, right? of that fundamental justice of the socialized state, the total state.
0: Yeah, but see, now you are, you know, affecting people who depend on the same system because of their disability or mental health issues. I mean, just today there was another article saying a serving member of Canadian military who is suffering from PTSD was offered uh, assisted dying instead of health. One argument, and this is how I started uh, writing about Assisted Time, back in October, uh, a five-year-old article on Canada Broadcasting Corporation, which is taxpayer-funded national broadcaster of Canada, Mm -hmm. which is another atrocity. But anyway, so... Uh, That five-year-old article somehow popped up on Twitter and started bouncing around and I saw it. uh, The argument there was that offering assisted dying to people can uh, be useful in cost-saving for the healthcare system. Now, because this is a government-monopolized healthcare system, there is no alternative. And this idea should be anathema to anyone. If if, uh, someone is actually desirous of getting assisted suicide and all the other circumstances uh, tie in with that. Nothing wrong with it. Let them have their dignified exit from this. World. But to offer that as a way to save cost in the healthcare system, we are spending north of $300 billion a year on the healthcare system. Healthcare spending accounts for roughly one third of all government spending in Canada, that is federal, provincial, and municipal put together. Out of that $300 billion, don't tell me we can spell, uh, save 35 million. It's not even a drop in the bucket. And even if it was a more significant amount, it should not be a factor. That is Why? how I got interested.
1: Why though? Like, what's the fundamental value of? That of
0: not offering cost people. saving. No, I'm... no, we can we can continue to offer that option, but don't talk about cost saving. Okay, because that shouldn't be a factor.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
0: By creating its own monopoly, the state has given an obligation to provide health care at which it is failing. Yeah. Don't tell me you are going to save money by offering desk people in a healthcare care system.
1: So we we launched into the maids thing from uh, speaking about a multicultural society and fundamental rules that everybody has to agree on. What's the tie-in mm-hmm. with the right to life or the sacredness of life or the inability to access easy death? Like, what's the fundamental agreed-upon civilized you know, standard that's in being Canada, violated in Canada? There isn't.
0: In Canada, there isn't. See, and this I have uh, written in my articles, that laws are supposed to represent the will of the people, of what kind of conditions they want to be governed by. And then you make due allowances for minority rights and other factors. But broadly, it is supposed to represent an overall consensus among the people. Once that consensus is arrived at, or a broad agreement, the societal process moves into a political process. Hmm. Political process ultimately culminates in a legislative process to create the law. No law can be perfectly written. And then over time, unforeseen situations may arise. So you need the courts to interpret as to, you know, here there is an ambiguity, what does it mean, or to adjudicate between conflicting rights of two different sides. In Canada, the whole process is going in reverse, where somebody goes to court, says, hey, my charter right is being violated. The court expands the definition of when assisted dying can be made available then the legislature is in a hurry to catch up to that expanded meaning. They invite some uh, professionals from medical fields and maybe some social services, although I have seen very few names there. And then they arrive at a predetermined uh, conclusion because the objective is to bring the law in compliance with the court's interpretation. So, no amount of evidence to the contrary is going to weigh on the decision. And this has happened in the most recent uh, uh, committee report which I read uh, of the parliament. And uh, so many mental health professionals were saying that it is difficult to predict whether someone's mental illness is uh, irrecoverable. You know, that it is irremediable. And even then… The legislation is going to ignore that. The law is already in place. Only thing is there was a breathing period of two years given back in 2021. So in March 2023, assisted dying will be available to mentally ill people. Now this is contrary to the advice given by mental health experts. Because the court is now in the driver's seat, not the society. With all due respect to courts, they cannot arrive at a proclamation which is athwart the wishes of the society. But the society has not even been consulted.
1: Well, but the, just to argue a little bit about that or to shore up your argument, the court made its decision in the context of an individual suing the court. Right, so an individual there was there was uh, input from society through litigation, and then and then the court decided based on a case. Right, so the, the will of the people decided, could be said to be coming through the court.
0: No, no, there has to be a society-wide process of consultation. For example, and I'll give you one very small, humble example that okay. the disparity between the right to access death and right to access care has only been pointed out by me. Now these are two court decisions. And they are telling you completely opposite things in pursuit of the same fundamental justice. So somebody has to clarify. When you bring these ideas and these are fundamentally important ideas, they are not even important for the time. They have been important ever since humans became self-aware, before civilization began. Ending a human life via human interaction. Right? So, you need to throw it out in the bazaar of ideas. Hmm. And bazaars are messy, chaotic places. Hmm. Instead of that, they are going for the simplicity of the supermarket. Where everything is neatly stacked, labelled, there is no eagle haggle on price. There is no cheating on weight. And everybody knows we beat any competitive offer flyer is in their hand, right? So, it is a very orderly place. And within the context of shopping for your groceries, it's a good thing to have. But when you're talking about issues like uh, life and death, then you have to throw it out in the bazaar of ideas which will be chaotic, messy, time-consuming. A lot of people will get bruised. Maybe your pocket will get ticked. But ultimately, the result that comes out of it will be, I am not saying it will be right, but it will be more acceptable to more people. Mm-hmm. Here the acceptability is not even on the radar. It has not been tested. Nobody wants to test it and they don't think that it needs to be tested. And this is where I think the the greatest danger lies because we will end up creating a system which is so misaligned with everything. Hmm. I'll just give you one simple example. Uh, I started digging into these eligibility criteria. Who can uh, request that? And I made a startling discovery because immigrants, when they come here, legal immigrants, there is a waiting period of 90 days, at least here in Ontario, maybe different in other provinces. But there's a waiting period before the publicly funded healthcare system uh, makes them eligible. So in that waiting period, if they need any medical attention, they have to pay out of pocket. They are not covered by the provincial health plan. But if they want to access assisted dying, that's available. We, are
1: there a list of things that they can access be in, before that 90-day period is, is a, a Like, is it it just uh, assisted dying? I mean, maybe a molar taken out
0: or something like that? No, they are not covered. They cannot access. Okay, dental is not covered by the provincial plan. So they would still be out of pocket. But whatever the provincial Hmm. plan covers, there is a waiting period for that, except for assisted dying.
1: Anything else? Like maybe emergency care, maybe? Maybe like like a broken arm or something like
0: that? They are out of pocket. They can still go to the same facility, but they have to pay. Okay. Because they are not covered by the provincial plan. But if they want to access death, then the system will cover them. They don't have to. Pay. Okay.
1: <laughs> the- People on
0: work permit. People on work permit can access assisted dying. Now we have a huge uh, component of our farm workers who come from Latin American countries in our short growing season, around March, April is when they come. Yeah. And by October, they are done, they go back. Places like Ecuador, Peru, Chile. They come. And uh, it's a well-oiled machine. Same people will come to the same farm every year. You know, They know each other. They know how this farm operates. Lots of benefits to that. But if that person wants to access assisted dying then someone has to hit the pause button and at least want to inform their family. (laughs) I mean, recently a case happened in British Columbia of a Canadian, not a foreign worker, who used to be a nurse. I just heard this yesterday. Used to be a nurse in some mental health facility. Then she had a disability, became depressed, requested assisted dying, was given assisted dying, and the family didn't know. Hmm. So how far do you emphasize the right of the individual, including the right to privacy? Uh, That someone has to figure out instead of doing it blindly, you may still choose not to inform the family. As a policy, maybe. Hmm. But it has to be after duly deliberating on the idea. Not because nobody has thought about it. Even people on temporary residency permit can access assisted dying. Now, and nothing was, else. Sorry? Nothing else.
1: Nothing else but that. Nothing okay. else.
0: Yeah. And even people whose application for temporary residency permit has been refused can access assisted. And the refusal can be because they have a criminal background or they are a threat to national security of Canada. <laughs> it got crazier the more I looked into it. And yeah. I said, hey, this means that whoever... Uh, created this wording in assisted dying policy as to who it should be available to, didn't think that it could be touching other areas of government policy. And this kind of a gap or a mismatch cannot exist if you throw that idea out in the bazaar. Because somebody is bound to bring this up. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own grip on an issue, their own exposure to the issue, their own way of thinking. They have been, They have, maybe they work in a field where this would be the most glaringly obvious gap. But if you keep it confined to the wood-paneled corridors of the parliament, which I have now started calling a Politburo, hmm. because what's happening here is basically central plan where a few dozen people are deciding uh, on a law that will apply to 38 million people. And if it was some other less consequential law, that would be less of a concern. But this is something gravely important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there needs to be, if need be, for years and years, public consultation. It needs to be there. Otherwise, we are going to have a problem on our heads. Let's say there is a headline in in CBC or whichever media outlet, suddenly saying this lady, for the sake of convenience, let's call her Maria Lopez from Ecuador, her husband came to work here uh, on a temporary worker visa and then he stopped sending money and she made so many desperate attempts to find out what was going on and finally discovered that he had chosen assisted dying, given assisted dying and nobody knew. Then there would be a controversy and every politician will be trying to run away from a camera. And then offering platitudes like we have an ironclad system of this and that, which means nothing to Maria Lopez.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? So you need to figure all this out. You cannot just make policy saying this is a right and no other consideration matters. It is right, I agree. Someone who is in the last stages of their life, maybe two, three weeks to live, the pain is just too unbearable. The family agrees, okay, fine, if that's their wish. All the families from across the globe has made it at their last meeting with the mm-hmm. ailing person. Then peacefully, in a dignified way, if they leave this world. That's a desirable policy to have. But then you cannot expand uh, without consulting with the society. Well,
1: do do you suppose that they're just going to implement this and then clean up the mess afterwards? It doesn't seem that efficient. And I wonder, do Canadians, citizens have recourse to change this other than voting other people in? Would that be the only way to do it?
0: First of all, governments don't clean up their messes. No? They get voted out, the new guys come, they create their own messes and then they get voted out and it (laughs) carries on. So, the mess, it's rare that a mess gets clear. As for uh, people to get active in this, unfortunately, there isn't much public debate. There are a handful of independent Voices like myself who are talking about it. Rupa was another one who wrote a very good article on such that. So and uh, Ben Woodfinden is another and maybe a few others. So, uh, the awareness among the general public is very low. Uh, I started taking it to the ethnic audience. Uh, yesterday, my segment on uh, Punjabi TV channel had, there were also other people interviewed for that and uh, uh, basically the hard political reality is this. There are these big urban centers like Toronto and Vancouver uh, that decide the outcome of an election because of heavy concentration of seats. Now these areas have something like half the population that is immediate. And because our uh, Policy of multiculturalism incentivizes immigrants not to dabble into mainstream issues. This is not getting discussed with the intensity that would matter in Ottawa. Because if enough people in the Toronto area and Vancouver area start uh, clamoring about this, saying, hey, what are you doing? Then everybody will sit up and take notice. But that's not happening and it's it's not happening because that's how the system is structured. Where if huh. I don't consume any ethnic media because they keep talking about what's happening in India and what's happening in Pakistan. Yeah. Here, our cost of energy tripled. Nobody knew. <laughs> <On> Triples. Those... <laughs> yeah, it tripled. Oh gosh. Okay. I mean, back in 2003, we were paying 4.3 cents uh, unit for electricity, and by 2018, it went to 18 cents. So, it more than tripled, then they've tried to bring it down, but it's uh, window dressing, I know. They're just adding it to the provincial deficit. The cost remains the same, it's not showing up on my bill. So, nobody in ethnic media was even talking about it, and I read five scripts, in mean, languages. I read five different languages, different scripts. And I used to follow all of them. And I said, these guys are not doing anything. That's when I started getting involved. And I said, hey, you know what? If nobody's doing it, then be the change that you want to see in this world. Yeah.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: And by now, I mean, I've covered Canadian healthcare system is another one where I've written extensively, I think nine or 10 articles in all. And it's a, it's a royal mess. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So there, there's something that, um, I just want to bring up that the multiculturalism through the mosaic type where everybody's just kind of cloistered and they, they keep to themselves. It's, uh, it's basically balkanization from the central planners. Everybody's like just in their enclaves and they're not talking to each other. So the central planners gets to the ones who are uh, promoting multiculturalism and keeping people separate through ideas like cultural appropriation and, and respect and diversity and inclusion, which is actually the opposite. They they get all the power to make all these decisions because there's no united People, Everybody on the ground, all the citizens are all in their enclaves and they can't come together to challenge or to change the, uh, the ruling class. So the elite have basically through a compassionate sounding uh, ideology of diversity, equity, inclusion, multiculturalism have cons- basically consolidated power. Because everybody's not talking to each other they're all separate and they they need to keep separate they need to keep their languages and their i guess foods the one thing that everybody can share um, to a certain degree mix and match ingredients but other than that on a cultural level from what you're saying all these different immigrant communities are actually their media is pointing them outward to look back home to look somewhere else and to not look where they are and then to not facilitate the community building that would allow for a groundswell will of the people to challenge that centralized elite group
0: you have voiced exactly my thoughts on this i agree brilliant maneuver that's very (laughs) it is it keeps us divided here and you know all those foreign conflicts from the countries of origin of people And in the Indian subcontinents, it's easy to find them. Mm -hmm. From centuries ago to today, Kashmir is one, Balochistan is another, Punjab versus the Khalistan demand is another. And I was talking to a group of my Sikh friends. And I said, you know what, this is at least 250 years old tactic. And we are still falling for it. Because the British started taking political control of India in 1757 when there was a battle between the British Indian Army. By then they were just traders and they had an army to protect their trade interests. They had a battle with the ruler of Bengal, which means today the country of Bangladesh, the Indian state of West Bengal plus the surrounding areas. huge area. And they had a battle with uh, the uh, army of that Nawab, Sirajud Daulah in 1757, where the British Indian army won. And that's how they started taking political control. How did they win? They promised the general of the Indian king that if he manages to lose, they will make him the king. Number one, Number two, on the so-called British army's side, there were 200 British. The remaining 20,000 were Indian. Exactly 100 years later, or almost exactly, in 1849, British wanted to take Punjab. They took their army from eastern part of India, called Purabiyas, because Purab means east. So, they took their Purabiya soldiers to Punjab, fought the Sikhs, defeated them and took Punjab. Eight, eight years later, the Purabiyas revolted in 1857, took Delhi and then the British had to fight back. Otherwise, they would have lost India completely. So, they took their Sikh soldiers to fight the Purabyas. I said, okay, those guys didn't know. So, let's not pass judgment on them. But at least we know it's now 150-year-old history for the Purabiya versus Sikh conflict. And 250 years from the defeat of the Nawab of Bengal, ud Dawla, At least now, we have no excuse not to learn. We are in this country, we are in a minority, and if we unite, then we will... And I'm not saying we should unite for any uh, cause that is harmful to the society, but at least you know to contribute. But instead of that, they will keep us focused on the Khalistan struggle or Balochistan independence or... The Kashmir issue, which has been burning between India and Pakistan for 75 years, because it is profitable to them here.
1: Well, furthermore, the concept, the leftists or the left ish concept of representation, of pulling up members, selecting specific members of these minority groups. To forward their own agenda, but because of that magic of representation oh there's a Sikh in office so I should vote for the Sikh and mm-hmm. it all comes bundled even if the uh, even if the political party at the core of that party's ideology is anti- Sikh uh, you know values uh, you still see the Sikh you know doing all the things and, and representing you so you kind of that it works against your self-interest. It works against the self-interest of that minority group because it it undermines it through the process of representation.
0: True. And it even works to the detriment of the society in general. I know a very senior Sikh gentleman here who has a very important position in the Sikh society in the Toronto area. And one day when after this... uh, marijuana was uh, legalized in Canada he was with the Sikh MPs, the members of parliament uh, and he said you know, how on earth did you vote in favor of this as a Sikh and they said you know what, we are Sikh when it comes to representing the interests of the party to the people inside the parliament we have to do what we are Same thing with assisted dying. I mean, I'm not much for the religious angle on this because that's not how I think. But at the same time, I know that religious angle can provide useful inputs in the whole formation of the policy. But they have been shut out altogether. It's only back about seven years ago when the first law following the Supreme Court decision was being passed that they spoke up. After that, they have been quiet, I don't know why. They should be pushing for this, saying, hey, you know what, at least we need a seat at the table. They're not saying that yeah. we do what we want. Yeah. But th- their seat at
1: the table is contingent on them obeying and only speaking out on certain, at certain points on certain issues, right? But they have to keep in line in order to, I mean, power is power. So they're given representation. But they have to obey power in order to keep their position. So they have a seat at the table and they can have a little bit of wiggle room on certain issues, I'm sure. But as long as it works in the interest of the party, more or less. And again, it Mm -hmm. insulates the elite class from reality or from at least the will of the people from that bizarre that you're talking about as well as they start to make decisions that don't have to meet up with input and they can hide data. I know that they hide data. I know that Canada, with regard to the gender issue, has uh, refused to release data on the impact that you know, this gender inclusive self-ID policy has had on women's prisons and mm-hmm. rape shelters and stuff like that. Right. So women are given a seat at the table, but then they're shut out uh, from the interests of women in general
0: true. You remind me of a scene from the movie Gandhi, Hmm. where uh, Gandhi is making an address at the annual convention of the Congress Party. And he says that we gather here, make speeches for each other and for the liberal English press that will grant us a few lines. So, you know, it's basically ineffectual. But even that is not existing. So once you get to that stage, then you can spread your legs a little bit further and try to be more effective. But the whole process is shut out. Hmm. It's happening inside a politburo in a central planning manner. And it's going to cause grief. Hmm.
1: Wow. Hmm.
0: See, uh, assisted dying came into effect in Canada in 2016. And in the next five years, compared to the first year, Uh, the increase had been almost 1000%, 989%. 3.3% of all deaths in Canada are happening by assisted dying. Is that too high? I don't know, but someone needs to go into it. Now, next year when mental health gets added to a condition that makes one eligible for assisted dying, How is that going to affect the numbers? Because now you are looking at a population that uh, isn't near the end of their lives. I just looked up the number for suicide on the official Statistics Canada website. And from 2016 to 2020, it had not gone down. In 2020, it went down slightly because of uh, the COVID shutdowns and all. But otherwise, it remained flat, maybe showing a slight increase. So, giving the option of dying via medical intervention is not reducing the suicide numbers. Now, even recently in November, I think, British Medical Journal uh, published an article uh, saying that, uh, in fact, uh, offering assisted suicide can uh, reduce the number of suicides.
1: <laughs> I mean, In November, that, I'm sorry. Isn't that? It's like that. That's not like a. That shouldn't be a selling point of assisted dying. It's like, well, at least people aren't committing suicide because we're killing them. Like, yeah,
0: I I guess unless there's
1: like mental health conditions and you contact the family and people actually don't choose assisted dying because they're they're given the option of an out. But then they're put through all these processes that get Hmm. them grounded and maybe get them connected with family and make them choose not to do that. Right.
0: The whole focus has shifted. From doing what it takes to improve the person's condition so that they feel hopeful about their lives. Because there is this category, RFND, reasonably foreseeable natural death. Mm-hmm. So, in the non RFND category, it should be approached with extreme hesitancy because there is something else that is driving the person's desire. And if we can uh, attend to that something else, then maybe they'll feel hopeful enough in their lives. Mm -hmm. There's this journalist in Canada, Andrew Lawton. He wrote an article recently on assisted dying. He said, in 2010, I was ready to commit suicide. And had this law existed at the time, I would be dead. Because they would have said, fine, we'll help you. But at that time, the focus was on getting people out of that state of a young man, he is still young, so that time he was younger, and uh, with a full life ahead of him, whatever was causing he, his mental distress should have been uh, relieved. So the whole focus has shifted, and he's going to shift even more the next year when this whole mental health thing kicks in. Uh, that, you know, we no longer owe them. There was, you must have read the case of a person who is on disability benefit, severely disabled. And his reason for uh, requesting assisted dying was that he was fearing that he would become homeless. Mm-hmm. Because the rooming house where he was living that had been sold was being renovated, whatever. So, he wasn't sure whether he was going to get a place to live and as a disabled person he didn't want to live on the street. So, he requested the assisted dying was approved. And then luckily some TV guys got a hold of him. They heard about him. And then the report created a furore and somebody, some unknown person, nobody knows who it was, but some unknown person put up a GoFundMe page for this Mm -hmm. individual. And then it uh, generated $68,000 and now he has decided not to die. But Mm -hmm. fearing that one would become homeless, not being homeless, this is a prospect that can drive someone to that decision. At that point, the moral obligation is to do something about whatever causing that. Well, that's a moral
1: obligation, but is there the uh, is there other incentives for the health industry to solve these problems if it's already in a mock if it's so inefficient right now if they if everybody's got a long waiting list like there has to be yeah there's a moral obligation, but there's no incentives to change the system in order to implement care that would save people from this cheap alternative this cheap out that the system now is Implementing.
0: Changing Canada's healthcare system is extremely difficult, if not impossible, because it has become ingrained in the psyche of people that this is a morally just way of providing healthcare. Hmm. And then the only thing that they see, other than Canadian system, is the U.S. system, or a perverted image of the U.S. system. I can say because I have seen it work firsthand, it has its shortfalls. it has its shortcomings, but which system doesn't? Mm-hmm. Right. So, the moment someone says that, hey, we need to do something about it, the only acceptable reply will be that we need to increase funding. Because it is an underfunded system, which is verifiably, demonstrably false. I have written an article on that with all the official data and still people come back saying, you know, your chart is wrong. The chart is from Canadian Institute of Health Information. (laughs) It gives data from 1975 to 2019, showing how as a percentage of GDP our healthcare spending has increased, barring two periods of financial stress, one in the mid-90s and the other at the 2008 9 Great Recession. Mm -hmm. but see you can't um, prevail over ideology with facts so they will find something to oppose and every politician will talk about underfunded and depending on their party if he happens to be a liberal then they will say that the previous conservative government cut funding if they are conservative they will say the previous liberal Uh, government cut funding. We have a provincial uh, representative of uh, my area. He was on a Facebook live interview one day. And healthcare came up. I was watching and he said, you know what the previous uh, liberal government cut healthcare funding. I shot off a message right there. I said, I can prove to you with data that it is not underfunded. Then he changed his view. Because the only possible solution uh, Possible within the psyche of Canadians for our healthcare system is to throw more money at it Mm -hmm. and to keep claiming that it is underfunded. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they believe that Canada has a world famous healthcare system. So if it is chronically underfunded, how is it world famous? Mm -hmm. Something is missing in between. Yeah.
1: Right?
0: Yeah. Just a simple datum. Uh, hospital beds per 1000 people. We are national nationwide, we are at 2.5 hospital beds per 1000 people. The average in OECD countries is 5.0. So in when I countries? bring it up, Sorry. OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, so it's a whole bunch of, I think, 70 odd countries.
1: Okay.
0: But when they collect data, it will be about 40, 45 countries. So in that whole list of 42 countries for this particular chart, we are at number 32. The average is 5.0. We are at 2.5. Neatly half. Mm -hmm. So, when I say that, the counter-argument is that it's because of uh, better technology. Japan is at 13. Don't tell me it's because they are technologically backward. (laughs) So, then the next argument is that it's because their population is older. Okay, our population, median age increased from 26 to 41 between 1970 and 2019. Really? In the same period, our hospital beds went from 7.0 to 2.5. Oh. (laughs) We used to have 7.0 beds per 1,000 people in 1970. Now we have 2.5. You are saying it's because of technology. You are saying Japan has more beds because their population is older. Our population got older. Why, why no more beds? Right? So, it's, it's a, like banging your head against the wall, which I keep doing. I enjoy <laughs> why? that. I enjoy that. See, what happens is, uh, I read this uh, horrible saying uh, that social change is brought about one funeral at a time.
1: Got your happy price, priceline.
0: But beyond that, and that's a horrible take, but beyond that, the social change is brought about by one opinion at a time. If I can convince one individual in one conversation, and it has happened, there are people who used to believe and they have said openly to me on Facebook or Twitter saying, Hey, you know what? Thank you for this. My view has changed. So I'm doing what I can. If I can change 100 people's opinion, that's good enough for me. But changing Canadian healthcare system is not possible. Well, so, yeah. So if
1: it, there's, I can't, I can't figure out how to totally frame this, but you have this government monopoly who's only, there's no solution, but you can throw more money at it, right? But you have an aging population who's going to be making less money over time. So you need to bring more people into the economy. You need to open up the immigration thing and also control all these immigrants by keeping them separate. Hmm. And then leeching more money out of them to fix a problem that you're not actually fixing. It, it, it just seems like this huge mess, this huge Cthulhu beast right that's just kind of gobbling up society and not fixing anything but giving you palliative care and then and then there's these little points of contention like this maids things medical assistance and dying comes in you're like wait what is that is that the solution is that the only solution that they can come up with because they can't stop they can't reform but they can offer death that's a solution for for the system it saves the system money and it it covers up for the system's failures to solve certain health pro- problems, mental health problems, right? They can just kind of. It's just like this. It it it. The, so the this entity that's gobbling up people's money is now actually now gobbling up people's lives. It's like it, it's revealing itself for this anti-human system while it's trotting itself under you know fundamental justice and. All these, it's just so perverse and scary, you know, in a horrific, you know, Lovecraftian sense when you look at it in that light.
0: You've touched upon very important points here. First of all, it's an immigration Ponzi. And I came here by immigration, so I cannot say that, you know, I'm against it. <laughs> but it's an immigration Ponzi. They need more and more people to feed the tax base which feeds the programs where there is tons of waste someone did a study recently and said that uh, on a per capita basis uh, canadian healthcare system has 11 times as many administrators as that of germany oh
1: less hospital beds but more administrators
0: yes So, uh, Canada has something like uh, one administrator uh, for every 1,400 odd patients. And uh, in Germany, it is one administrator for every 15,000 plus patients. So, we have 11 times as many administrators. Nobody will do anything about it. You need more and more people, which is why our official immigration quota always keeps going up. Because it's a Ponzi scheme. Nobody can uh, get off that tiger because the tiger will eat them. So it's an immigration Ponzi, but at the same time, if you look at other studies, uh, uh, from I think around the last 50 years or at least 40 years, um, each new wave of immigrants does uh, less and less well financially. So the amount that they can feed into the uh, public uh, kitty, yeah. Tax. Uh, that is uh, on a per capita basis lower, which means you need even more people to make up for the shortfall, yeah. which increases the pressure on wages. So, their tax can, it's a spiral. Yeah. You bring more people because the existing number of people aren't feeding enough into the tax system, but the increased number of people will depress wages. So, they are feeding even less on a per capita basis. At the same time, every election time, they have to announce free this and free that. Mm-hmm. Plus, see, one of the major problems with our healthcare system is that it is so well funded. <laughs> because yeah. it, is a, it is a way to siphon off public funds in favor of cronies and all, mm-hmm. which happens everywhere. Canada is not unique in that. But you have to decrease the pressure. But that pressure is not going to be decreased because we have monopolized healthcare which accounts for one third of all government spending. So, the outflow is increasing. The inflow on a per capita basis is constantly declining. And then when you are heading into economic headwinds like we are now, the option of assisted dying becomes uh, you know, very popular among people who are the bean counters. They'll say 35 million dollars and to the average person it's a very big min- amount of money. But 35 million in a total spending of 300 billion is nothing. Yeah. So then they have to construct a narrative that this is the humane thing to do. Yeah. That is, that this is fundamental justice. There's yes. even a term, uh, healthcare choice. It's a healthcare choice. Yes, it is for a very small number of people it is, but it cannot be expanded. Oh, wow. So this is going to <laughs> go into a spiral. I mean, there's nothing else. It's so sad that I can only laugh.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess at some point, uh, barring collapse at some point, it's going to not make sense for people to immigrate to Canada they're better off staying at home and dealing with you know the poverty and or the less advanced way of living than to go up there and get caught up in the system eventually the wages will be depressed so much that there's no incentive to move to canada anymore
0: apart from that even the availability of housing cost of housing yeah availability yeah. of healthcare all those factors are there i don't disagree but yeah. to sound very Arsh, as P.T. Barnum said, there is a sucker born every minute. Mm. Now, what happens is they are not suckers. I'm not calling them suckers. They are living half a world away. They are not familiar with the on-the-ground situation here in Canada. Then there is a whole machinery that paints a very rosy picture to people who are unsuspecting and who are desperate Mm. in their present circumstances there. Mm. So, now it's common for me to see here international students who have... It's another way of immigration. The family owned a little bit of land, they sold it off, still went into debt just to pay for the first terms fees. And then the boy is here or the girl is here. The moment they land, their objective is to get two or three jobs... Uh, minimum wage jobs sometimes off the record less than minimum wage because they have to send money home to service that debt right because now they are trapped they can't go back once they see the ground reality they realize that they were so, sold a bill of goods but uh, then they are trapped there are all sorts of uh, social issues also if someone goes back then it's a matter of shame in their social circle culture specific issues there so uh, they continue here so and recently i saw that they have decided immigration department has decided to uh, change the um, emphasis to different source countries so what happens is when enough people in India know that this is not a good option, they'll go to another country and then yeah. they'll mine the human capital from there. Goodness. Once that country catches wise, they'll move to another country.
1: Goodness. That's so horrific. I mean, if you look at it one way, I mean, I understand the thinking of the bureaucrats in the system, but if you look at the system and what it's actually doing, it's... Just this biblical beast, this leviathan, that doesn't really actually care about
0: welfare. No. It's actually, it's colonialism 2.0. Yeah. And few people have made this connection. Colonialism 1.0 involved someone from Europe to go to another country. Establish enough of a stronghold that they could exploit the uh, economic output of that uh, location, and then send it to the home country. Same thing is happening here. Because the guy, the young boy, maybe 18 or 20 years of age, who has come here, because his family sold their land. That money ended up here in Canada. Yeah, But no one from Canada had to go there to exploit that. Yeah, It also increases wealth disparity in India, because somebody in India bought it. Someone who could afford. So it increases wealth disparity just like colonialism did. It increases wealth disparity, vanishes the middle class, even lower middle class, impoverishes the poor. The money ends up here because, on the argument that uh, international students are subsidizing the education of domestic students. So, why has the tuition for domestic students gone so high. Again, we are paying administrators, not educators. Yep. Right? Yep. And then that poor fellow, I pity them. So many of them end up committing suicide unofficially four to five a month just in the Toronto area. Really?
1: Of international
0: students? Yes. But then again, the, you know, humane... Angle comes at play. So, they don't announce, the police doesn't announce because of sensitivities around suicide, privacy issues. So, there can never be official data. But unofficially, four to five international students from India are committing suicide every month. The rest are trudging along, doing two or three jobs at less than minimum wage sometimes sending that many home. So their exploitation is going on here as well.
1: Yeah,
0: It's colon, colonialism 2.0, clear and simple.
1: Yeah, We're dressed up in the guise of multiculturalism and, and the global society, you know, yeah. cosmeto- cosmopolitan global society, the shining yeah. city on the hill. It's so
0: weird. Yeah, and then when they grow up, they'll be in their ethnic silo. Now the problem with India is that every ethnicity speaks its own language. Just like Europe. So, it's a huge barrier. We may be from the same country. But unless that person knows either Hindi or English, there is no way we can communicate. Yeah. And it's a sign of how far down they have gone in sourcing uh, these immigrants, including international students. That I, for the first time, in all the countries that I have lived in, First time, I am meeting people from India who don't know Hindi. It it took me a while to adjust to it because Hindi is the common language and it's not one language. It's spoken in a thousand different variations, but people manage to understand each other. That's the purpose of a language. And here I am seeing people who don't know a word of Hindi. I'm like, when I was a kid, I had to force myself to learn Hindi so I could talk to the Punjabi students in my school. Now here there are people from Punjab who don't know Hindi. <laughs> so yeah. it has gone down to that level, you know, the remote areas of yeah,
1: the rural, remote, rural regions
0: yeah. Yeah. where they are not uh, ever required to speak in any language other than their rural dialect yeah. of the ethnic language. So when you uh, prevent their integration in the mainstream, you are, as a politician, way better off. Because these are now the groups of people that will never be able to talk to each other. Wow. Because their language is vastly different. Their outlook is also vastly different. They are reaching their ethnic silo. And they'll never be on the same page. It makes my life as a politician very comfortable. And the promise
1: of somebody in rural India going to Canada... And you get streets and like just uh, the modern conveniences, the disparity of what you imagine Canada to be is even greater when you get here. And then you end up having to work yourself to the bone, like you don't understand the cost of what you're paying for. You're actually paying for this system to run and the system's leeching your life out of you. Unless you can make it, I guess you take the gamble. You come here, you, you make it somehow. But if you're not able to integrate into the society, how big can you get if you can only stay in your ethnic silo? W- w- what can you do? Work at a call center? You still have to figure out how to you know, capitalize when, when you get to Canada. But you would have to be educated enough to do that, you know economically and culturally, uh, kind of to have a capitalist culture informing you on how to w- get ahead and not just work. Wow. Are there resources that you know of for, you know, well-meaning Canadians to help these uh, immigrants, these students
0: to get ahead? They, they do exist, but they also suffer from the ethnic silo limitation. Yeah. So if there is a group help, helping international students, it will cater to Punjabi students. Yeah. They're trying, I mean, giving them due credit they're trying but you know in the last few years what has happened is that the only immigrants who really uh, prospered here were of two types one where they were able to somehow get into a good uh, professional job let's say something related to science or IT or you know one of those things or the already well off people from mainly India, uh, who were well off enough to get into real estate. That's another Ponzi scheme we have here. Immigration Ponzi is uh, necessary to support the real estate Ponzi. So I mean, I don't like saying this about my own country, but we aren't uh, doing anything to make ourselves more competitive in the global marketplace. And we have a history of doing that. The latest example was Blackberry. After that, it died. But back in the eighties or thereabouts, we developed the uh, Canadarm, which is the uh, extension for space uh, aircraft. Uh, before that, we had the Avro Arrow, the most advanced military aircraft in the world huh? in the 1950s. Even the US didn't have anything as advanced. We developed that. Going all the way back to the 1800s, when a black Canadian, Elijah McCoy, developed something called a drip cup. So th- that was the age when uh, big machinery was the cutting edge of technology
1: yeah. and
0: all the moving parts had to be lubricated. Yeah, And he developed a cup which would drip from the bottom at exactly the right rate so that the parts were lubricated, but the oil wasn't oversupplied. And he patented it, then it became so popular that there were many counterfeits in the market, so people started asking, is this the real McCoy? That expression still exists. Oh, okay. Is this the real McCoy? (laughs) The original thing, the authentic one, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So, we have... Hundreds of years of history of, you know, producing something that was useful to the world. And everybody benefited from the use and we benefited from the invention. That is gone. We are not doing anything that makes us more competitive in the global marketplace precisely at the time when the global marketplace is becoming more competitive. And just to be clear, you're talking about Canada? I'm talking about Canada. Yeah. Elijah McCoy was from Ontario, Colchester, Ontario. Yeah. So, as a country, Canada was always, you know, doing something that uh, took the world by the storm. Was useful. The first uh, computer graphics program, Coral Draw, was from uh, from Canada. Right. So we have a history of doing that, but it's dead. It's because we have now focused on being a noble society. I think. Oh. You know, what is the more progressive thing to do?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, even when this whole gender thing was being discussed, here it's known as Bill C-16. Yeah. I think it was in 2017 or thereabouts, where it, uh, you know, it became a charter right, a constitutional right. So, if you misgender someone, then it's a criminal offense and things like that. I mean, you mentioned, you know, how it has become problematic. Again, my opinion is that it was because the idea wasn't thrown in the bazaar. Well, there I, someone they, they allowed out.
1: some comment, but it was already a foregone conclusion.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Same thing with the assisted dying. I mean, all the discussions are pointless because they have decided what they are going to do. Yeah, yeah.
1: It it seems like uh, one marker of a decadent society is when the ruling classes focus more on social innovation than Mm. actual innovation, right? And so Mm. it seems like Canada, from what you're saying, is that they are just playing the woke game. We're going to be socially innovative because that gives us cred, but it doesn't actually fulfill anybody's needs. But it's great to paper over all the problems. Like, oh, look, we're going to paint a rainbow flag over everything. and It's like rainbow washing all the problems, you know, but it doesn't have any actual material benefit or, like you were saying, it produces something that the world really will use and benefit from the use of. Um,
0: exactly. And, you know, then you end up in uh, ludicrous situations. Like recently there was this university in Ontario which uh, held a yoga class. Oh, no. For black students only. Yeah, yeah. Which means that Indian students would be shut out of a yoga class. (laughs) Talk about cultural appropriation.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know where this lies on the intersectionality totem pole. (laughs) It becomes ludicrous. Yeah. You know, first time I heard about this was when uh, University of Toronto, uh, black students, there was a separate convocation. For black students, to give them a safe space. And I said how short a time it took from Martin Luther King saying that you will not separate people based on the color of their skin to people agreeing that separating people on the basis of their skin is a good thing to.
1: So It's a valiant thing, and the other way of thinking is actually a regressive thing. Martin Luther King is basically a fascist because he wants us to be colorblind or whatever.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's an excellent American movie, uh, not very popular. I saw it when I was in uh, Africa, and because it involved a black theme, you uh, know, maybe it was shown there. <clears throat> it's called uh, Brother Future. Brother Future? And it, uh, yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah. One day, I was just out of curiosity, I was searching for it, and I saw that it's there, Brother Future, where there's this uh, Detroit or Chicago or one of those cities, where there's this uh, high school uh, kid, black uh, boy, who never goes to school, hangs out outside school with his parents, and is basically into petty crime and things like that.
1: Yeah.
0: So, one day, he sees... uh, uh, electronics store being looted. And the looters had brought a van to load everything that was in the store. So he stole something from that, from the van. So he was now stealing from the thief. And uh, it was, I think, a Walkman or something, some small item. And then he ran because the police were approaching and he thought they were coming for him. So he ran and ran through traffic and he was hit by a car. And when he landed on ground, he was in uh, South Carolina, 1862. Oh. And then, you know, he's, he sticks out like a sore thumb with his sunshades and yeah. sneakers and all. And two white guys pass from there uh, thinking he's an escaped slave. Uh, they, are, they are on horses. And then they capture him. He gets sold at the slave auction. And then in the slave population there, there is a lady who remembers all the voodoo traditions from Africa and has a world of experiences. And then something happens where he's running again and he's thrown off and then he lands back on that street in his city. And his entire outlook has changed. He said people risk their lives just to be able to read. And now we are getting a free education in a public school, and we aren't interested in going in there. So there's something comparable happening here. Where we said, you know what, we should not exclude anyone to the point where you know this community is so vulnerable and oppressed that we need to give them a safe space, which is another way of excluding them. Yeah. There's a TV series, American TV series called Separate but Equal, worth watching. Pure. It's uh, Sydney Party is in the lead role. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, and there they have hashed it out uh, very well. So we have gone back on that, one hundred eighty degrees back on those ideas. Yeah. So that's the focus now in Canada to become more and more progressive or woke, regardless of what it does to the society well yeah
1: i think it it i've been critiquing the woke uh, ideology uh for quite some time that's how i get started but um one thing that it actually shows you is that it's it's basically basically the religion of the uh, administrative state it's a bureaucratic religion it reduces everybody to statistics and accounting Measures it divides people up into all these identity quotients and stuff mm. like that. But the spread of it is actually a sign, in a certain respect, of, of a of a bloated state, a bloated uh, state of bu- bu- bureaucrats that need to uh, you know, justify their existence. You know, I, I need to have a. Uh, HR rep and a DEI coordinator. And there's all these positions to fill, to fill this need of safety and inclusion and diversity and stuff. It's, it's a, it's a grift, but it just shows you that the state itself is no longer producing. Well, if it ever produced anything, but it's, it's so engorged now that it's just like, like these cancerous pustules are like exploding Mm -hmm. on it and gobbling up even more resources.
0: And one part of it is that uh, the state which means the bureaucrat. Yeah. In any individual case, it means the bureaucrat wants to decide what people can or cannot. I'll give you an example. Back in the socialist days of India, um, if you wanted to start a factory to make something, there used to be something called licensed capacity. Okay. So let's say you are making components let's say, screen for a smartphone. Then the state will tell you how many you can make in a year. You can't make more than that. Otherwise, you are in violation and you can even face prison time, you know, things like that. Now, what business does a bureaucrat have deciding how much I can make of one product?
1: Yeah.
0: Leave it to me. If I overinvest, I'll go bust If I create too much capacity and cannot sell, then I'll go bust. If I create too little capacity, I won't achieve my potential, but hopefully I'll catch wise and increase my capacity. And whatever I can sell, profit or loss, it is for me. Then I'll pay tax on that. Instead of that, the state was saying that you cannot make more than this quantity of this product. So they want to be in charge of every decision and this led to a situation where we only had those two-wheeled Vespa scooters, cars were rare, yeah. scooters also became rare because population exploded and the licensed capacity of the only manufacturer in India was not <laughs> increased. Yeah. So we reached a point where the waiting list for the uh, Vespa scooter was like 17 years you may have seen that joke about uh, that Ronald Reagan said about a guy in Soviet Union who went to buy a car and he, the salesman said, okay, you have taken your details. You can have it after 20 years on this day. <laughs> and the man, so the man asked, would it be in the morning or the afternoon? <laughs> so the salesman said, how does it matter? It's 20 years away. The guy said, no, the plumber is coming on there. <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe I have seen a waiting list for wristwatches. Oh, really? Yeah, if you wanted to buy a wristwatch, there was only one manufacturer, it was a government owned company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imports were not allowed. Yeah. So you go there, they have all the models on display, and you select one, and then they'll give you a slip saying, Okay, you have made your booking. You can't buy a wristwatch off the shelf. That's where it ends up being, but they're happy with that because they get to exercise control over what you do and what you cannot do. But the thing is,
1: is that from what you're saying, the same situation has been replicated with socialized medicine in Canada, where you are on a wait list. But because it's healthcare, it's got this humanitarian vibe to it. It's got this... Just this moral force to it that makes it unassailable, and in, in the way that a wristwatch, you know, which is a luxury, mm-hmm. but healthcare is a right. So we're going to yes. ensure you're right and then totally muck up the process. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Apart from the guy who was on a wait list for spinal cord surgery for four years, there was another case of two ladies, actually, two separate cases, <clears throat> both in like, New Brunswick where they had a skin condition, I think epidermis or something. And uh, it wasn't available in their province at all. So they said, okay, we'll cross over into Maine, USA, and uh, get the treatment there. So will the provincial plan cover that? So the healthcare bureaucrats came back saying that we can cover that only if uh, this is certified as necessary by a Canadian physician who is licensed in this province. They said, if there is a Canadian phys- physician licensed in the province, we wouldn't need to go to me. Yeah. It's a classic catch twenty two situation. Joseph yeah. Heller couldn't have written better than this. Yeah, because there is no one qualified to do that in the province, we need to go elsewhere. The nearest place is right across the border, but to for the provincial plan to cover that, it needs uh, certification from a provincially certified uh, medical professional yeah. who doesn't exist. Catching <laughs>
1: people, you gotta love it. We're we're we the, the Kafka Orwellian yeah. fever dream is just right for the yeah. taking now.
0: And the question is. How long before this spirals into dissent? Because this is not a sustainable situation. But at the same time, um, it can be long-lasting. See, for the people who died before 1991, communism and Soviet Union was forever. Yeah. yeah. As Yossarian says in Cash 22, he says, it doesn't matter who won the war to a man who is dead.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the the
1: momentum of uh, this Cthulhu, this beast is such that it's not going to be anytime soon, barring an economic, total economic collapse, or you have a very strong willed monarchical guy who rises to power and completely cleans the whole thing up like Elon Musk has done with Twitter in the last few weeks. Mm. Just rip the Mm. whole thing apart and start over again.
0: Yeah.
1: Not a lot of people would be happy about that. But society might be well served. that's the only two options that I see.
0: Yeah, but those upheavals tend to be very painful for a lot of people. yeah see look at the collapse of Soviet Union. I mean I've been there uh, in part of the Soviet Union after the collapse and I have seen even years later they were all very traumatized yeah because there was no matter how inefficient the system was there was order in their lives, and then the collapse created the kind of chaos that was very traumatic. And the longer it takes for the change to happen, the bigger the collapse.
1: Really? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In the case of Soviet Union, you can, you know, uh, at least uh, theorize that if the collapse had happened in the 1950s or 60s, maybe it wouldn't have been so painful. But they held on until they couldn't hold on. And then it just went uh, you know, out of anybody's hands. So yeah. the same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Darshan,
1: it was wonderful to speak with you about a variety of issues. I contacted you about the medical assistance and dying program, but it was great to be able to put some context and bring your checkered past and... <laughs> polyphonic wisdoms to the table and, and kind of look at the problem as it's situated in, in a broader set of issues that you're covering on your blog. So you, you want to plug where people can find you so people can follow and, and read up on
0: uh, all of your reportage. Sure. My website is darshanmaharaja.ca and on Twitter, my handle is at T.O. And, uh, I have a podcast on Podbean. Uh, I put out episodes very uh, seldom. Yeah. Only if there's something that, uh, you know, I want to cover, but not in text format. Yeah. And uh, that's called Our Canadian Journey on Podbean. Cool. So, those are the ways. On my website, there is a contact page. So, they can always send me a message on Twitter, of course, but... For a longer message, maybe the contact page might be better.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just for uh, human interest, do you have like a fun hobby? Are you a cook? Do you play golf? Or do you have a a skill that's non-political that you really enjoy?
0: I'm a cook. I enjoy cooking. Yeah? And it's funny because uh, in a traditional Indian household, I grew up as a pampered boy. Yeah. Boys aren't supposed to enter the kitchen. My secret suspicion is that it's because the ladies want to gossip. They don't want the boys around. <laughs> but whatever the cause, we end up being pampered. And the only thing I knew how to make in the kitchen when I left India for the first time, went to Africa, was how to make tea. Oh,
1: so you could boil water and put sugar in yeah. it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh then uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So I had to learn, teach myself. So luckily there was no one to witness the disasters. <laughs> <laughs> I could <laughs> keep them secret. Uh, but over a period of time, I developed a liking for cooking, and it, it actually helps me unwind. I cook regularly even now as a married man. What's a, what's one cook. of your
1: specialty dishes?
0: Uh. Actually, you know what, Um, in terms of innovative dishes, uh, there is a uh, concoction of spaghetti that I make, uh, which is full of so many uh, spices, not ground spices, uh, the full ones like uh, cinnamon or clove, plus onion and uh, garlic and pepper and all that. Uh, It gives so much heat inside the body, it doesn't. Taste hot on your tongue, but it gives so much heat inside the body that if you're down with flu, oh. you take that for dinner, you wake up fresh in the morning. Oh wow! So that's the innovative part. Otherwise, I enjoy the traditional uh, cooking more. Traditional there, to
1: your yeah, uh, upbringing.
0: To my to my region, but then uh, my cooking is not very authentically regional. Because I learned on by myself. Yeah, yeah. So it's not very authentic. But then, to the extent that it uh, varies or deviates from the traditional cuisine, it becomes interesting. But you got a killer flu
1: killing uh, spaghetti recipe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Did you sell See, it to the, the truckers they... when they were protesting? Keep them warm? <laughs> no, the I wasn't no, no, bad. no. Okay. No, no, I didn't. <laughs>
0: Now there's this classification in uh, in Indian subcontinental cuisine of food items that either cause heat inside the body or cooling inside the body. Some things go both ways, like onion. It goes both ways. Huh. Yeah, it makes you cool. It also heats you up depending on the season. But uh, so it, that I knew a bit of that, so it was helpful in guiding.
1: What's um, this? Uh, what's this thing called? This this heat body food index.
0: I don't know what it's called. Okay, I it's just, just like this it, understanding uh, of how. Yeah, that certain things will cause heat inside your body. Yeah, and certain things will uh, make it cool. For example, uh, you are familiar with ghee, g h e e clarified butter, the clarified butter. Yeah. If you got a minor burn on your skin. Mm-hmm. Just apply it there, and you won't feel the burning sensation because it's cooling. It's extremely cooling. If you have got a, a mouth sore, just put it there. Huh. You will stop feeling the you know burning sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are certain uh, dishes that I make where I use ghee as the cooking medium. For example, if it's bell pepper. Then the two cancel each other
1: out. Okay. So it's got like a neutral heat food index. (laughs) Yes. Fascinating. Sounds like alchemy.
0: Food alchemy. Yeah. 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 Actually, you know, uh, there is this uh, school of thought which says that uh, medicine should be your last recourse. Uh, Your body should be kept healthy by what you eat. So, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, but uh, even if you're a non-vegetarian, you can moderate what you want to eat. You can monitor that. And it changes depending on how you're feeling, especially during different seasons. Yeah. So, there are things that we eat in uh, summer that we refrain from in the winter because they automatically make you cold from inside. There is a variety of frozen yogurt, which is traditional in India, especially in the part where I come from, the state of Gujarat. It's called Shrikhand, and it's frozen yogurt, but with loads of sugar in it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That one we only eat in the summer. Yeah, we don't eat in the winter. Yeah. Yeah, just like wearing a scarf in the summer. Yeah.
1: But exactly. a, a scarf for the inside or, or an ice pack. Yeah. Bikini for the That's inside. Right.
0: Something <laughs> <laughs> to cool you down. <laughs> All right, yeah. Dushan,
1: I'm going to end the recording now. Thank you so much for uh, joining me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a very uh, important discussion, and I'm glad you're taking
1: it. Up. Absolutely. And thank you for 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 contacting me and for all the work that you're doing because it's very important for people to understand what's going on and the nationalized media is not incentivized to deal with national problems.
0: Yeah, even all the other media units are now sort of nationalized because they've got a $600 bailout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, It's a
1: vicious cycle.